0: Hail and welcome to A Satanist Reads the Bible, a podcast about philosophy and religion. I'm joined today by Cora Howell, with whom I wrote another episode, The Evangelical Campaign for Queer Genocide, from June of 2022. I'm immensely proud of the work we did on that episode. I consider it some of the best... And most important work to have come out of this project. And in our conversation since then, we had discussed the possibility of doing another collaboration. Well, the stars have aligned, and we've got another great episode for you, which we've recorded together. And now I'll pass it over to Cora for her introduction.
1: Hi, I'm Cora Howell. I am another podcaster. I have my own podcast, Satanic in Nature. We're a little bit more you know, lighthearted and less uh, philosophical about things, but we are equally as Satanist, equally as fun. We just like to, you know, more have a conversation. It's usually just my friend Tomoe and I hanging out and we get to talk about some of the things that are facing us in more of a cultural aspect around there. So, if you have some time, go ahead and check us out anywhere you might find podcasts uh, around today. Um, I'm also a Satanist who helps to run Hale, Arizona, as well as uh, a person who's been around the block as far as within the Satanic community. But I'm really happy to be a part of this episode. As I tend to be more conversational in my podcasts, we're going to do a little bit of a mix here today. Some of this is written, this is something Todd and I wrote together, and some of this is going to be more conversational. We're going to talk through some of the stuff, the key points to make sure that we get everything across that we've thought about and more in, in depth right. And then we're going to go into something where if there's anything that comes up in between the sections that we've written, uh, we'll we'll talk about it for a little bit. But other than that, I want to jump right in with the content and really get into this uh, episode. So to introduce this, have you ever heard someone say that you should follow the Golden Rule? Even if you don't follow the Bible or its teachings, I bet most of you would know That rule is being something along the lines of loving your neighbor as yourself or treating others how you want to be treated. This is a line that's so fundamental to the Christian viewpoint and the modern view of Christianity that you almost can't avoid knowing it anywhere dominated by Western culture. Even more so, it's a rule whose importance is agreed on regardless of whichever sect or denomination of the wider religion to which a person belongs. There are other verses as well as that the vast majority of modern Christians agree on in terms of meaning and importance. For the purposes of this episode, we will call these the golden verses, and I say that in air quotes. And today, let's examine these verses in detail and try to get a better sense of why they occupy the central role that they do in religion. For reference, there are 31,102 verses in the standard Christian Bible, Old and New Testaments. That's going to vary somewhat as one looks at different versions of the Bible as they exist in, for example, the Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church. Oriental Orthodox churches, such as those of the Ethiopian and Eritrean traditions, and so forth. But whatever tradition, there's a wealth of verses to draw from. But not all of them receive equal attention. Anyone living in the modern Christian West has probably heard John 3.16 and may even know the text, even if they're not Christian. But how about Ezekiel 23, verse 20? There she lusted after her lovers, whose genitals were like those of donkeys, and whose emissions was like that of horses. So you longed for the lewdness of your youth when Egyptian or when in Egypt, your bosom was caressed and your young breasts fondled. Or how about Deuteronomy fifteen verse one? At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. Now, both of these verses, hilarious as they are, and contradicting, as they are of modern Christian Orthodox beliefs, you're not likely to hear them mentioned in your average Sunday sermon. So, how is it, and why is it, that particular verses have come to occupy a central space in the religion while others are neglected? Perhaps, The best way to answer this question would be to take a look at a few of the more popular verses and to look into the history of their usage and translation to better understand the role they occupy in the broader religion.
0: Cool. So, anything we wanted to discuss before we dive into it?
1: I think this came up, and I do have to give a shout out to one of my friends, Natalie. Uh, She did her dissertation as part of her master's program on this kind of concept of things being left out, and not talked about. And, you know, it really inspired me to to kind of bring this up as an episode because it's one of those things that is never talked about in the Christian society from a personal perspective, from my own perspective. Mm-hmm. Being someone who's been a part of the Christian religion in a deep way as a former pastor of a, or not former pastor of Being someone who's a former president of a church congregation, this is really something that I recognized as I left the church. And it rung so true to me as something that really they utilize quite often. Uh, And they don't, they leave things out, they pick certain things. And so, golden verses, I think, is the right term for this.
0: Yeah, Cora and I really had a lot of fun researching and writing this because when you start diving into the, the history of these verses, their different translations, their political uses, which will be something we're focusing on, uh, it's really fascinating stuff. And one of the things I'm always emphasizing in my show is that the Bible is a really cool book when you take it for what it is. It's a fascinating wealth of different ideas, different beliefs about God, different beliefs about the sacred. And when you kind of boil it down to just a few verses that aren't even presented in the context of their uh, original authorship, then you, you lose a lot of what I think is really interesting and fascinating about the Bible. So let's dive into it. Let's begin with 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 through 17. For context, 2 Timothy is one of two letters in the New Testament believed to have been written by the apostle Paul to an unknown church leader named Timothy. While many Christians still accept Paul as being the authentic author of these two letters, it is now commonly accepted among historians that both 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy are pseudo-epigraphic. That is, that they were written in Paul's name by someone else sometime after his death, probably in the early 2nd century. The text of the verse in the King James Version of the Bible reads as follows. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, throughly furnished unto all good works. This verse is commonly cited by those who assert that the Bible is divinely inspired and infallible. Christians do not typically believe that the Bible was directly authored by God, but instead believe based in part on this verse, that the human authorship of the Bible was written with divine inspiration and is therefore free from error. This is a doctrine of central importance to most of the Christian world. It establishes the text as carrying the authority of God. The verse was originally written in the language of Koine Greek, and the translation in the King James is, in our opinion, fairly in keeping with the spirit of the original Greek. If anything, the Greek is more emphatic, using theopneustos, God-breathed, a more active adjective which is usually rendered in English as inspired by. But one must keep in mind when this text was written, the early second century. Even if one believes that it was written earlier by Paul, that would place it in the late 1st century, and both of those datings place it prior to many of the other works of the New Testament. What we understand today as the New Testament is the result of a process of canonization that occurred over centuries. Many of the included texts, such as the Book of Revelation, were not written until after the Epistles to Timothy. In fact, if we look to the Codex Vaticanus, dating to the early 4th century, we find that it is missing several of the books we now consider to be canonical, including the Book of Revelation, the Epistle to Titus, the Epistle to Philemon, and even 1st and 2nd Timothy themselves. It is cannot be the case that the author of 2 Timothy was referencing his own text or any of the other texts of the New Testament when he was discussing the inspiration of Scripture. This brings us to the key point we would like to address in this episode. The deliberate social and political processes of canonization which have established the contents of the modern-day Bible have enabled an interpretive ability which can be applied in different ways in different time periods to systems of social control. As stated earlier, 2 Timothy was written in the early 2nd century and only gradually came to be accepted as part of the canonical scriptural base for the new religion of Christianity. The Synod of Hippo in 393 and the Councils of Carthage in 397 and 419 affirmed the inclusion of 2 Timothy in this scriptural canon, but it wasn't until the 16th century, at the Council of Trent, that the Roman Catholic Church officially confirmed the modern version of the New Testament canon, including 2 Timothy. This text in particular was selected along with the other texts now accepted as part of the New Testament canon from a wealth of gospels, epistles, apocalypses, and other writings available in the first and second centuries. The matter of why particular texts were selected over others likely warrants an entire episode in itself, but we can see how 2 Timothy, and in particular verses 16 through 17 from chapter 3, could serve a political purpose for those authorizing the canon once it becomes canonical that anything designated as scripture is either god-inspired or god-breathed regardless of the original intent of the author anything politically desirable can be included as well and given that presumption of infallibility right so
1: this thing is actually the probably one of the most central pieces of this, and it's something that I had never quite considered as something that to combine, I think, was the biggest thing. And so, as we go further in this, I think that's going to be a key theme. I, looking at this, I always felt that it was something that gave me authorization even as a Christian. I think back to when I was in the church and it was something that I could always lean back on as a crutch, like no matter what someone said to me, this was something I could say is that the, the the Bible was perfect, right? The Bible was God-breathed, the Bible was God-inspired, so why question anything that I was doing or anything that I was trying to, uh, you know, do?
0: Yeah, that's, I, I had never really read the Bible in that way back in the day when I was some kind of Christian. Uh, I talked in other episodes about how I was raised kind of loosely in the Christian Science religion. but this is this is a conclusion, this political process of authorizing canon that came really organically out of our research. Uh, as As you were talking, Cora, I was kind of thinking about, uh, I heard this story, and I'm not sure if this is true but that under under the the regime of of Stalin in Russia there was a guy whose job it was he just kept a bunch of quotes of Lenin on file cards and Lenin was a hugely prolific prolific writer and his job was whatever policy Stalin wanted to enact this guy would find a quote from Lenin to authorize it and we we kind of see in this in this process as we go through these verses that uh, that this the Bible has been kind of used to work the same way, uh, which I think is a really fascinating history. I think it's fascinating that it's been involved in this political process, but that's something that's kind of overlooked. So, should we uh, move on to the next verse, or any other thoughts
1: on that? I think I have one more thing to add in the sense that we have looked at this a bunch of times, and everything that it really comes down this comes down to as well with this particular verse is that none of this happened until much after the bible was created and mm-hmm. it amazes me how much later when we when we put these dates out there it's easy to think of them as kind of something that's close together but in all reality this is stuff that's like you know millennia apart right and i think you know, we, we live very short lifespans. If we think about the number of generations that this passed through over time and the number of decisions and the number of cultural shifts that happened during this, it's amazing how much the Bible has changed, yet there's specific things that they've kept.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, if you go from the oral tradition of the ancient Israelites, we're going back to uh, beginning of the first millennium BCE, if not older, then it's, it's starting to be written down over the entire course of the first millennium BCE. Uh, and then we have texts being written for the new canon, the New Testament, over the first few centuries. And then there's a process of authorization, canonization, translation that continues to this day. Uh, The Bible, in many ways, is a living document. And, you know, I think a lot of people look at it and they say, like, oh, it's, it's stuff that was written a long time ago, and that gives it a kind of authority. But Not everything was written at the same time. They were written in very different periods by very different cultures, which I think is really fascinating.
1: Absolutely. With that in mind, let's see how this interpretive power manifests in other verses. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5 in the King James translation states, The woman shall not wear that which Pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. It's easy to see how such a verse can be weaponized in contemporary discourse surrounding drag shows, transgender people like myself, and the general politicization of gender. Looking at this verse in context of the time period in which it was written, likely around the sixth century BCE although that is an uncertain and disputed we have to keep in mind that it referred to the specific clothing of the israelites of that time period simple tunics and cloaks for men simple dresses and shawls for women commonly with some kind of head covering the textiles were linens made with flax and wool it is the intended interpretation of the verses referring specifically to the clothing of the time period or is it intended to refer to gendered clothing as it exists in any time period. The halug, a kind of tunic, was worn by both men and women of the time period. Gender differences in clothing of the period mostly pertained to undergarments, jewelry, and head coverings. And these styles persisted over many centuries, indicating that biblical verses pertaining to the clothing were meant to enforce their specific fashion norms. We have to ask, if we are no longer adhering to the ancient Israelite fashion in the first place, does this verse even pertain to us in the modern era? Beyond that, we can also see another potential political use for this kind of verse. Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 5, considered as part of the Old Testament canon along with the authorization given by 2 Timothy, that all scripture is inspired, conveys a power to dictate fashion and gender norms over time. The original intention of the verse is ambiguous, but the potential is there for it to apply to the gendered fashions of any time period. Observing the action of this verse over time, we can imagine a kind of a priori justification for gendering new fashion trends as they emerge, with the ultimate authority behind this justification being the church. This gives the church a kind of blank check for dictating fashions and gender norms over the centuries. Another method of control over society authorized by scripture. This is something that really hits home for me as a trans person. This is something that I hear all the time from different people and... When we were looking at verses to include, we had a whole list, and I think this one jumped out at me, and I've talked to it a lot because it's something that I face personally. And one of the things that I always ask people, because I don't think they've ever considered it, is, what is clothing? What What is the clothing that they're speaking of? And I ask this exact question. Most Christians have never considered it, and they automatically assume that ambiguous meaning. So. It's curious how not only does the church seem to have used it in that way politically in the modern era, but it's also something that even the people that have now become a part of the church and are, you know, at even the lowest levels now use it to justify some of their viewpoints towards people like me.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting how you can look at a piece of clothing and there's this perception that there's something about it that is innately gendered, objectively gendered. Like, for example, I could wear a dress. Nothing is going to stop me. It's not like lightning is going to strike me. God's not going to come down and say, hey, can't wear that. It's physically possible for me. <laughs> but there's this... There's this symbolic understanding of clothing that we take as natural and objective, that we say, like, oh, yeah, obviously that's women's clothing. But it's like, well, first of all, the entire idea of gender with regards to clothing is constructed. It's part of our social symbolic reality. Interesting thing is, is once you start to see that, once you start to understand that, then we start to realize that the entire category of gender with regards to people is also social and constructed. So it's so you get these you get this perspective on it that's uh that's a little bit different when we start to think that, oh yeah, these are these are natural, this is just the way things are, is what people say. This is just how it is. And then they'll go back to this verse, but it's worked in the completely opposite direction.
1: Absolutely. And I, I think the other thing that people don't understand, because again, uh, the most people in the church don't study the language or even the original texts of Hebrew, they don't realize that even in that time, there was up to seven different types of gender that were listed in the Talmud, for instance. And it's something that actually is really fascinating to me that even in the language, there was different types of terms for people back then within that type of language. Uh, But if you don't understand the language and you don't actually study that, you'd never know that. So, even in the context of the people that were writing this, there was a different, you know, form and fit for gender at that time than there is today.
0: That's really fascinating. I did not know that. I would, I'll have to look into that. Uh, we can move on to the next verse, uh, another famous verse, and this is also one that deals with gender norms a little bit. Another famous verse from the Old Testament uh, comes from Exodus chapter 22, verse 18. Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Take a moment to think about what the word witch means to you. For most of our audience, it is likely understood in itself as referring to Wicca or other forms of modern neo-paganism. One is likely also familiar with the usage of the word in the early modern period as a term of persecution in witch hunts and witch trials. These two understandings are quite different, but let's take a look at how this verse has been translated at different times in history. In the original Hebrew, the word translated as witch is mehashepha, from the root kashaf, which might be best translated as sorcery and which likely referred at the time of authorship to the magical practices of ancient Mesopotamian religion, which is quite a different matter from how witchcraft came to be understood in later eras. When the Hebrew Bible was translated into the Greek Septuagint, the translation took on a much different character. The word mechashiva is translated there as pharmakous. You're likely familiar with the Greek root pharma, as it appears, for example, in pharmacist and pharmacology. It pertains to drugs and medicines. The Greek concept pharmakon is a complex one. In the Phaedrus, a dialogue of Plato written about a hundred years prior to the translation of the Septuagint, the term is used to refer in an abstract way to something which may be helpful or beneficial, but which also can take on a harmful character. Given the relation of the root, to drugs and medicines. We might loosely interpret pharmacus as poisoner, but healer is also possible. Here we have another ambiguous verse which can be interpreted in different ways in different eras in order to serve political aims. It's unlikely that any women in England in the 15th century were practicing ancient Mesopotamian magic. But with the paired ambiguity of the verse and the authorization of scripture as infallible, we can see how a person in a position of religious authority might apply it to any woman they don't like or want to control or get rid of. The witch trials of the early modern period were often economically motivated. In some cases, accusations were used to remove women, particularly widows, Who possessed property or wealth that others desired. The witch trials didn't end until the nineteenth century, but we have to wonder whether that's the result of rational enlightenment thinking or whether it simply became too much of a threat to the authority of the state. For example, the Salem witch trials were halted by the governor of the colony only after his own wife was accused of witchcraft. The paranoia hasn't entirely gone away. In a sermon from February 13th of 2022, Pastor Greg Locke of Tennessee invoked the verse as part of a claim that witches had infiltrated his congregation, claiming that three of them were in the very audience of that particular sermon. At present, the state does not permit citizen violence on this sort of religious foundation, but that hasn't always been the case throughout history and it's not impossible that such times would eventually return.
1: You know, I have two things on this one. I personally identify as a non-theistic wish, someone who doesn't pras- practice it theistically, but actually, I tend to do ritual, I tend to do things that help me to feel better about the world, to gain more confidence as I'm going throughout things, and to do what I would consider, you know, if you look at the Satanic Bible, uh, you know, certain form of magic, right? I think you did a great episode on that at one point, and mm-hmm. I really do feel like it's something that's fun. But would I even fit under that definition as a result of the fact that i'm following you know ritual and i'm using witchcraft so to speak but i'm not even doing it with any sort of belief structure so it's really interesting to me that there can be so many different interpretations of what a witch means let alone a sorcerer which implies some more sort of uh, you know dark meaning so i I find this one fascinating that they can still use it even to this day. And Greg Locke is one guy that I have seen, I don't know, a thousand times on different things. He is, it's actually a surprisingly small church for how much attention he gets, actually.
0: Yeah, well, you see that a lot with the, the smaller guys trying to really be provocative to make waves. Um I think you make a really good point because, like, what we've kind of seen with our research and that uh, the, the word witch basically means whatever they want it to mean in order to attack the people
1: that they don't like. One of the things that I see a lot in modern evangelicalism is the fact that you have a lot of people that are utilizing that term very loosely. For example... I remember different friends of mine not even being able to watch Harry Potter because of this verse, specifically, and the fact that the they were practicing this imaginary form of witchcraft in the movie was seen as so heinous by some evangelicals that they were boycotting and, you know, protesting this type of movie. And so, even today, it's less violent, but it's still happening.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. The way that the 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 way that Christians relate to to media. And obviously this isn't this isn't true of all Christians, but there have definitely been movements in Christianity reacting to things like Harry Potter. Probably if we looked into the history of Lord of the Rings, I'm sure that there would be Christian reactions to that as well. Um and it's it's what's interesting me to the, what's interesting to me there is that you've got like uh, you've got these Christian rituals these you know for example the Eucharist which is either a symbolic or even a literal transubstantiation of uh, food goods into uh, the the flesh and blood of a God uh, and. The difference between that and anything that we would call witchcraft or sorcery, to me, seems completely arbitrary.
1: Yeah, in fact, uh, many of the people on TikTok that are witches jokingly say that Christianity is a blood cult as a result, because they are technically doing blood rituals uh, as a part of that that particular thing. And it's really interesting to see the distinction between what they consider their magic, their, so to speak, uh, miracles, and what anyone else would do. Uh, so. Yeah,
0: and that's that's reflected in the verse too, because like I was saying, uh, machashifa is probably in reference to Mesopotamian magic. So, what they're doing is they're distinguishing their magic, their ritual, from the stuff that they don't like.
1: Yep. And I think that the control of women even gets into the next thing that we're going to talk about. So, let's get into that. The next part that we're going to talk about is 1 Corinthians, chapter 14, verse 34 to 35. "'Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for a woman to speak in the church.'" We can read this alongside First Timothy, chapter two, eleven to fifteen. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Let's first consider the context of these verses. The first epistle of Paul to the Corinthians and the first epistle To Timothy are letters written to specific congregations in the ancient world to address their problems and questions concerning the practice of the new religion of Christianity. Historians believe that 1 Corinthians was indeed written by Paul the Apostle. 1 Timothy is, as mentioned earlier, likely written in Paul's name so as to assume his authority. The presence of these verses in Scripture as canonical and infallible authorizes the control of women. However, the application of these verses as universal within Christendom is in direct contradiction to the role played by women throughout the Bible. We have, for example, several women throughout the Old Testament venerated for their authority, their teachings, or their prophecies. Abigail, wife of David, Rahab, who saved Israelites during the siege of Jericho, and who is praised by name in the New Testament in Hebrews 11.31. Esther persuaded a Persian king not to commit genocide against the Israelites. Ruth, who is considered a paragon of faith. Judith, who saved Jerusalem by assassinating an Assyrian general. Miriam, sister of Moses and Aaron, a prophetess. Deborah, one of the biblical judges, a leader of the Israelites during the pre-monarchic era, and Phoebe, who's mentioned by Paul in Romans chapter 16 verses 1 to 2 as a church leader. But regardless of these contradictions, First Corinthians chapter fourteen, verse thirty-four to thirty-five, and 1 Timothy chapter 2, 11 to fifteen, made it into canon, and it can now be used by anyone wishing to silence women, especially anyone willing to ignore the context of the verses and other biblical narratives that contradict them.
0: One of the things that came to mind that uh, came to mind there is uh, the. Uh, Hildegard of Bingen, who was, I can't remember if it was 12th or 13th century uh, abbess, one of the most brilliant minds of the medieval world, Uh, a brilliant, brilliant composer, uh, delved into science, uh, herbalism, all these different areas, absolutely brilliant mind, and if you read her writings, she's constantly down on herself for being a woman. It's constantly like, uh, it's like, I I know I shouldn't, you know, like, I, I don't want to take pride in these accomplishments because I'm just a woman, so on and so forth. And if you look at verses like this, you can see that it that, uh, you can take the position where it's like, oh, if there's a, there's a woman who you want to kind of authorize to say the things that you want them to say, then then there's there's support for that in the Bible. Uh, if there are women that are saying things that you don't like, then you can use this to enforce their silence. So once again, it's kind of like whatever you want to do for the, for the men in charge, whatever they want to do, they can find verses that are going to authorize
1: it. Absolutely. And they'll use those other people like Ruth, for instance, who has a whole book in the Bible – to say this is, you know, this great act as a Christian, and then they will use those other verses to knock women back down to say that they can't do anything. And in fact, Hildegard, I even made a cookie recipe once that (laughs) she actually invented, and it's really interesting to me that you bring her up because she shaped a lot of the Christian church for a little bit, and we have even other women saints now You know, if you think about different people who recently uh, have been canonized into sainthood, right? We have Mother Teresa. And if you think about the Catholic Church, they would be essentially saying that those women were great teachers. So that, even in modern day, contradicts the things that they're doing to try to create male headship in a lot of places. And I think it's really... Interesting that they t- don't—they don't acknowledge, or they do acknowledge some of those things, while not acknowledging them in the context of male headship.
0: And that's kind of the insidiousness of patriarchy, right there. Is that like you can find women who are going to support patriarchy, and then you can use your verses, you know, the verses that, you, that you've that you selected to say like, oh yeah, this, this woman, this woman in particular, knows what she's talking about. She's okay. Uh, and then women who speak out against the church, speak out against male headship and patriarchy. You can say like, oh, we go back to that verse, uh, sorry, let women be silent in the church. Like, what are they going to do? You've got books in the Bible named for women. Are they going to take those out? So, yeah.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting from a transgender person's perspective, given the fact that, you know, I've transitioned uh, as a person who was identified male at birth, and now I am who I am. I'm a woman. And I was not, you know, doing that until I was 29 years old. And so, for a good portion of my life, I was considered in a completely different light. And if you ever want to know someone who can see the difference of that to have been treated in a completely different way by people. Talk to a transgender woman, because more often than not, we were treated very kindly, very, you know, almost respected and revered in some ways prior to transitioning, and then all of a sudden, I mean, think about it, as a person who was a president of a church congregation, the way that I was treated. In fact, in my church, we only allowed men to vote in that church at that time. uh, Women were not allowed to be teachers, they were not allowed to teach Bible study, they were not allowed to teach kids, Uh, they were allowed to do other things, but they were not allowed to teach. And that's because the church I was a part of was very biblically literalist. And so, to have that power at one point in my life and then realize who I am. And then to see the complete flip of that has been such an eye-opening experience. Uh, I think there was times where I would walk up to a group of men that had known me prior uh, to my transition, and they would just grow silent. And I knew exactly what they were talking about, because before they wouldn't have grown silent, they would have just kept on going. And- You know, I've, so to speak, been mansplained to, I've had pay discrimination, and so to see that change in such a short period of time, uh, it's stark. It gave me whiplash, almost. And it's cool to kind of be able to talk about it a little bit and to call it out for what it is.
0: So, okay, next we'll look at Jeremiah 29.11, translated in the King James as… For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace, and not of evil, to give you an expected end. We'll also be looking at the New International Version translation. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. This verse is at the root of the modern prosperity gospel, the doctrine which states that earthly wealth is a sign of heavenly blessing, and that one should therefore accumulate as much wealth as possible as a sign of those blessings. Once again, we have to consider the context of the verse. The book of Jeremiah is a book of prophecy, written likely in the 7th or 6th centuries BCE, although it has likely seen extensive editing over its history. The book in total is a warning to Israel of coming punishment and destruction from Neo-Assyrian and Babylonian empires. Taken as a whole, it is not an assurance of peace and prosperity. And in fact, the word Jeremiah came into the English lexicon as a term describing a polemical lamentation. Verse 11 in chapter 29 does assure the Israelites that they will eventually be delivered from these empires. But to take the verse as being a bare assurance of prosperity is to rob it of its meaning and intent. Let's Take a quick look at another verse, Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me. Even this whole nation, bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven, and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Reading this alongside Jeremiah 29.11, we can get a picture of how a religious authority might be able to wield Scripture for financial gain. Jeremiah justifying the individual accumulation of wealth and Malachi justifying the transfer of much of that wealth to the church or to other religious authorities and leaders. And I just came across a news item yesterday that says that there's uh, a mega pastor whose name I can't remember who is worth seven hundred and fifty million million, three three quarters of a billion dollars. Just... What is even going on there?
1: All of it's not taxed either. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. None of their property, none of their income is taxed, and it's it's something that I personally have seen as a church leader and having to collect tithes, the pressures that churches put on people to you know, I think it's like ten percent of the income that they get that they're asking people generally to offer. I mean, that's more than the government, right? <laughs> people complain about the government, and here's this ten percent that they're asking for. It's it's unbelievable. Which, like, if you're if you're collecting money from the community
0: ten percent and you're putting it towards uh, building up your community, investing in uh, the disadvantaged, helping people out. Hey, great, cool. That's not what's happening if there's a pastor accumulating $750 million. There's just no way. That's money. I don't know what he's spending it on. I, I mean, I could probably guess, but there's I, – I can guarantee there are better purposes for that money. I'm all about like – Community work, community action to build up the community. And if there's a religious basis for that, then, you know, sure, go ahead. But when that's combined with the prosperity doctrine, then you can see these pastors who are just like, yeah, just just give me your money. You will have blessings. I will have money. And that is a blessing for me because of everything that we just talked about.
1: And there's extremes in this case. Some of those mega pastors, for instance, will say, you'll be cured even, and say people will be cured of diseases as ahead of uh, asking them for their money, and saying that this will be the reason why. And they'll even do things like saying that they, you know, will, they need a new thing. Like, I've literally seen a pastor say that they need a private jet, and that people should give more money. And for people to just openly blatantly do this it it's absolutely unconscionable i can't even fathom listening to that but the people who are doing this truly believe it and i can't imagine someone's you know so to speak grandmother giving money that could be for their treatment or their health given how expensive healthcare is rather to a pastor rather than going to the doctor to seek real medical treatment. And this is happening all over the place.
0: It's it's absolutely deranged. And uh, there was a John Oliver episode on, on the mega pastors. And I think I remember from that episode that there was a pastor who's just who specifically told someone, just like, oh, hey, don't put that money towards this thing you need, which I think was medical treatment. Give it to me, and God will cure you. And just like... Yeah, that's unconscionable.
1: I'll add one more thing to this. One of the things that blows my mind about this is how often it has been commercialized. If you were to go on Google right now, and I challenge any of you out there to do it, and type that verse from Jeremiah into Google, there will be mugs and hats and sweatshirts, and you name it, that will come up for sale with that verse on it. And it's been turned into something far different than its justification or its original meaning has ever been. Not to mention the fact that both the King James and the NIV versions have completely different wording uh, to the point where the word prosperity isn't even in the King James version.
0: Yeah, it's... um... It, we could do a whole episode, I think, on the relationship between capitalism and Christianity. because, And that's that's just like tying it all together where you've got the mug that is a commodity that you can buy that is also a symbol of the prosperity <laughs> doctrine, which
1: is funneling money. Yeah, it's it's a mess. So, this leads us into some other things, right? So, let's talk about the crown jewel of Bible verses in Christianity. John... Translated in the King James Version as, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Christians often take this verse as being a pithy summation of the entire faith, and it is indeed quite striking. What is consistently absent from the discussion and presentation of the verse is its context in the third chapter of the Gospel of John. At the beginning of the chapter, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a member of the religious caste responsible for administering the Jewish religion in Roman Judea, comes to speak with Jesus, having heard that he has performed miracles. Nicodemus wants to understand what Jesus is up to, but Jesus says that it will be impossible for him to understand until he is born again John chapter 3 verse 7 of the spirit this only serves to confuse nicodemus further and jesus scolds him asking how someone could be a religious leader and not know these things jesus makes an interesting reference to the old testament Specifically, Numbers chapter 21, verse 4 through 9, saying, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The section in Numbers tells us a story of the Israelites from the time after the Exodus when they were wandering in the desert. God punishes them for questioning the wisdom of Moses by sending down fiery serpents to assail them. The Israelites ask Moses to appeal to God on their behalf, and he does so. God then tells Moses to create a statue of a fiery serpent out of brass, which will heal those who look upon it. It's a quite bizarre narrative for a number of reasons. One, God seems to be encouraging idolatry. To the choice of a serpent as an idol contrasts with the usual symbolism in which a serpent is something to be feared or hated, such as with the Garden of Eden narrative. It's interesting as well that Jesus chooses in John chapter 3 to compare himself to an idol of a serpent. We've never
0: heard any sermon or discourse discussing the verse which also mentions this important context. When we return to John 3.16 with this context in mind, we can understand better what Jesus means by believing in him. The Israelites following Moses in the desert did not have to believe in the serpent idol in the sense of endorsing the proposition that it exists. Obviously it existed, it was right there for them to look at. In John 3.16, the word believeth is translated from pisteuo, which comes from the root pistes, which can be translated as faith, but which also more precisely means trust. Jesus is not saying that people will be saved through propositional belief. By making this comparison, he's saying that people will be saved through an encounter with Jesus, perhaps not necessarily with the person of Jesus, we might extend this to include his teachings or message, based in a kind of trust that such an encounter would be redemptive. What we don't see in this passage is the message that one needs to, for example, ask Jesus into their heart or accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. There are various statements made outside the Gospels in the rest of the New Testament that adhere more closely to these imperatives, but they're not anything that Jesus himself ever said. And in fact, Jesus seems to be implying something quite different in these verses. Jesus makes other comments throughout the Gospel of John as to what it means to be saved, but none of them quite line up with modern Christian teachings on the matter. He does imply in John chapter 5 verse 46, for example, that proper belief in him, belief again from a Greek root meaning trust, entails accepting that he is a prophet of God, but taken in context, John 3.16 seems to mean that a base level of trust in Jesus is all that is required for salvation.
1: Again there is support in the New Testament for the more mystical language involved in modern Christian conversion experience asking Jesus into your heart and so forth. But when John 3:16 is presented out of context and when it is further authorized by 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 to 17 one can spin the meaning of the verse into any number of interpretations based on whatever the presenter wants belief to mean. In presenting a key verse of the religion in this way, the church creates a hermeneutical need, a need for some medium of interpretation to say what it is exactly that is meant by belief in Jesus. The church itself can then step in to fill the very need that is created in the first place. These are just a few of the verses that we looked into in this episode. What we see here when we take these verses together with the way that they've been presented and interpreted by religious authorities over the centuries is an ingenious system of social control. By picking and choosing what got included in the New Testament canon, and then picking and choosing particular verses to emphasize and present out of their original context, the Church has given itself an authority over every domain of human life the verses we've looked at authorize religious control over clothing, over women, over capital punishment and even over the very nature of faith and belief themselves. We've seen how this political authority has been wielded over the course of history when it became politically and economically convenient to persecute women, Exodus chapter 22 verse 18 and 1st Timothy chapter 2 verse 11 to 15 became convenient justifications for such persecution. A 10th century text, the Canon Episcopi, stated that belief in the essence of witchcraft was heresy, as it implied a power in the world other than God's. Centuries later, when such an understanding was no longer politically convenient, religious authorities dragged out Exodus chapter 22, verse 18, and recontextualized them for the purposes of persecuting women. Women had played a significant role in the Jewish religion of the Old Testament and in the early church— when that ceased to be politically convenient, 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 11 to 15 was weaponized to ensure male headship. This process continues to this day. Arguments about, for example, drag queens and transgender people are contextualized by verses such as those we've discussed here. Other verses which might contradict such understanding, such as Matthew chapter 19, verse 12, which implies a kind of sacred status for eunuchs, are conveniently left out. We can see how a kind of subcanon of the existing biblical canon can be created ad hoc to justify whatever argument or cause, whether or not such interpretations are supported by the text as a whole. This subcanon, which we have referred to here as the Golden Verses, has become more important than the full meaning of the canon of which it is a part a canon which, as we've described, is in part itself politically constituted, selected for the express purpose of authorizing certain powers and matters of authority for Christian religious leaders. It is important that we keep this in mind because this is a process that will continue into the future, with other verses being authorized to support Particular viewpoints on the new issues as they arise, as we want to be prepared to understand such verses for what they really are.
0: Yeah, I just want to wrap up real quick by saying that, uh, as as I think I've made clear in, in 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 my work, I'm a very pro-Bible Satanist. I think it's a really amazing document, and. My advice to anyone listening to this is don't let the Christians control it. It doesn't, it doesn't belong strictly to them. It isn't just their text. It belongs. It's part of the lineage of the world. It's part of the history of the world. I think it's a fascinating look into the minds of different peoples with regards to religion. I think it has a lot to teach us. Not necessarily the literal interpretation that's often promulgated, but, you know, again, that's something that is controlled by a particular hegemony. And I I really uh, advise that anyone interested in this kind of stuff really get beyond just the the golden verses and dig into the real meat of a really fascinating text.
1: I think there's even verses that have made me laugh, right? I think... Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, we mentioned the one earlier about, you know, them talking about some sexual stuff. <laughs> and I I remember reading that verse, The when I got out of Satanism, or when I got out of Christianity and got into Satanism, I really, I think, read the Bible for the first time with clear eyes. And I remember reading that verse, and it truly just made me giggle the moment I read it. I just sat there and laughed and underlined it, right? And i it's not meant to be something where I'm insulting the, the Bible or insulting that verse. I just find it culturally fascinating and absolutely ironic that it was there. And to me, looking at the Bible, you have to look at it if you are a Satanist and to try to understand where this comes from. I think context behind the symbol of Satan. If you aren't even theistic and you are more atheistic, understanding the Bible helps you to understand why we call it satanism in the first place. Right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. For for me as a more theistic leaning satanist, I find a lot of inspiration, a lot of meaning in it, but there's also just these cultural sort of nuggets uh, like Cora was saying about the verses that are just like, wow, this is these are people who are not really all that different from us. They they lived in a different time period, they had different cultures, uh different customs, different beliefs. Uh but in, you know, they they also made dick jokes. They made <laughs> fart they made they made fart jokes. Uh there's like the The Song of Solomon, one of the books of the Bible, is a book of erotic poetry. Uh, The Bible is a a multitude, and I think we really diminish it by just like taking a few verses, a handful of verses out of the 31,000 plus in there, and saying, this is the religion. These verses are the religion. Uh, This is the Bible for you. Do what it says.
1: Absolutely. And I think, how can you even call yourself a Christian until you've actually truly understood all of it? And I think I've read it now more that I'm a Satanist than even while I was a Christian. And I read it a lot as a Christian, but it it was very contextualized and very guided. And I think that is where I would encourage anybody out there, even if you're just a Christian listening to this and curious about things, go back and read it. Go back and read it again with a viewpoint of just trying to, without any type of preconceived notion, without any type of context, read the verse as they are. And I think that people will find more meaning in it that way.
0: What do you think? Should we wrap it up there? Absolutely. All right. That's all for today. This episode of A Satanist Reads the Bible has been written, produced, and edited by Cora Howell and myself with the support of my partner, my family, my patrons, and my audience. Any thanks you'd like to, any shout outs uh, for you, Cora?
1: one more time I'd like to thank Natalie for kind of inspiring me to kind of reach out to Todd and to talk about this and to bring this up as a topic for an episode. I think without having talked this through with a few other people ahead of time, um, as far as some of the things that some of the original ideas of this, not the deep way that we've analyzed it here, but just the fact that we noticed it in the first place, I have to give them credit for that. And I think, uh, I want to thank them for the fact that I got to do this. And I'd like to thank you, Todd, for bringing me on today. Absolutely.
0: Thank you for joining me. This has been really fun. We had a lot of fun doing this. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the episode. We we really enjoyed doing the research and writing for it. And thank you, Cora, for coming on and uh, working on this with me. So to my audience, glad you could join us today. Until next time, always Satana.